Hello, and welcome back to The Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will cover the major events which took place during the long reign of the Ummah's first dynast, Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan. Having spent the first few years securing his grip on the Ummah, Muawiyah grew confident enough to change things around as he saw fit. Despite his reputation for controversy, there is no question that the Caliphate flourished under his charge, although this was not experienced equally by the entire Ummah, making his reign prosperous but somewhat divisive. Our focus will fall mainly on his triumphs today in episode 19, Umayyad Glory. I realize we've already covered Muawiyah's journey up until this point, but I want to start with a quick recap of his dizzying rise to power. He was born in 602, which meant he was in his late teens when the Prophet left Mecca for Medina after years of persecution at the hands of his tribe. He was in his late twenties when he converted to Islam with the rest of Quraysh after the Ummah's triumph over Mecca, in his early thirties when the first caliph sent him out with the Arab armies to conquer Byzantine lands, in his late thirties, when the second caliph confirmed him as governor of Syria, mid-fifties, when the third caliph was killed, kicking off his long struggle against Ali bin Abi Talib, and he became caliph himself around the age of sixty. I hope that was more helpful than confused. Maybe it's that old Napoleon quote about how in order to understand someone you need to know what the world was like when they were twenty, but I feel like keeping their ages in mind helps me relate to these historical figures. I know I often complain about the Arab sources, but it's my way of conveying the kinds of difficulties they present and help you gauge how literally you should take the content. In Muawiyah's case, the problem with our three authors is that there just isn't enough good material. Herodotus of the Arabs, al-Mas'udi, mainly gives us long accounts of conversations the Dahiyya had with other prominent Arabs, which are always amusing, sometimes enlightening and sometimes unlikely but at the very least, they can still be minted for clues about what else was going on at the time. Al-Yaqubi's account of Muawiyah is really short, often spiteful, and in it you will find mentions and summaries of some of the major events during Muawiyah's reign. Though it's very light on details, it does include an estimate of tax revenues from the different regions, and I've included some graphs on the show's website for anyone interested in how the caliphate regarded its lands and the relative financial importance of each of its parts. Our most comprehensive source, Al-Tabari, has the most material on Muawiyah, and as always we will get much of what we discuss from his history. Helpfully, he gives every year its own subheading and starts by listing its main events. Although this annual intro is not overly concerned with accuracy, it's still a handy structure, and he maintains it even for the years with no narrations attributed to them. Sadly, much of Muawiyah's reign falls into that category and in those years Al-Tabari only lists who led the raids against the Byzantines, who led the pilgrimage in Mecca, and that no governors were replaced. Originally I thought I'd just follow along, but I ultimately decided it would be best for us to take our time, as context will be crucial for the tumultuous period that lies ahead. So instead of just focusing on the narrative and relaying all that we're told took place, I'll stop and introduce or reflect on different themes throughout this episode.
Our first theme will be war, as there was plenty of expansion during Muawiyah's reign. Settling in new lands or wealthy cities did not appeal to the nomadic Arabs, who regarded their own advances as akin to their pre-Islamic raids on settlements along the desert. Whether they raided east into and beyond ex-Sassanid territory, or north and west towards Byzantine lands, they sought surrender and tribute, but little else. The histories make it seem like small towns and villages were either ignored or decimated, depending on whether they resisted the current needs of the Arab armies or sometimes just the whims of the commander in charge. Large cities were always a target, however, and after a military victory, the Arabs would take their tribute and rely on whatever local hierarchy remained in place to ensure that it would be rendered regularly, or else. The Umayyad Caliph was not particularly renowned for his skill at war, but his appreciation of what the Arab military spirit could achieve and his effective administration made him a real force to be reckoned with. Muawiyah subscribed to Umar's idea of the caliphate as an Arab warrior caste which lived off the settled populations it had conquered. And he also held the same perspective Uthman had towards the caliph's rights over the treasury, allowing himself full control of all its lands and wealth which he used to reward his loyalists. Instead of keeping the Arab armies along the edges of the desert from which they had originally emerged, Muawiyah, unwilling to leave his beloved Damascus, preferred to have them at the edges of his much larger domain, especially on the Byzantine front in Syria. It was where his most trusted loyalists and their forces lived, and where the strong alliances he had built with the local tribes counted for the most. Other forces were kept in the canton cities of Iraq and Egypt, but it made sense to assume that Muawiyah didn't fully trust distant armies outside his immediate control, for obvious reasons, like the success of his own recent coup against authority. Although Muawiyah is mainly known for his campaigns against the Byzantines, there were important conquests to both the east and west of his caliphate. We'll start with the campaigns in the east, as they were the earliest, ordered by Muawiyah's first governor of Basra, Abdullah ibn Amir, who quickly sent some of its armies to raid the large area the Arabs referred to as Khurasan, today's Central Asia and Eastern Iran. The Dahiya, who replaced him a couple years later, Ziyad ibn Abi Sufyan, continued and even expanded this policy. In that famous speech of his I mentioned last time, he promised the people of Basra to never keep them in foreign lands for more than a year at a time, making it clear that they resented long missions and also his intentions to continue to send armies out. Raids in ex-Sassanid areas uncovered some massive hidden treasuries. One especially large hoard was said to contain 50 million silver drachma. If we go by Ali Aqubi's estimates, these lands around modern-day Iran generated over 500 million silver coins of tax revenue every year. All this plunder pretty much financed the caliphate, and Ziyad spent a lot of his region's taxes on building up Basra, and then Kufa when he became its governor following al-Mughira's death in an outbreak of plague around 670. On top of his infrastructure investments in the Iraqi cities, Ziyad reorganized their entire social structure by grouping their various tribes into four or five blocks, giving himself the power to name each group's leader. This effectively suppressed the clannishness which had marked the politics of the Iraqi cities until then. Ziyad's administration was so competent that it attracted Arab tribes from all over the peninsula to Kufa and Basra, and Muawiyah expanded his charge to include Bahrain and Yamama or Eastern and Central Arabia leading some modern commentators to see him as sort of a vice-regent in the east. 
So throughout this mini golden age for Iraq, its armies were regularly coming and going, and over the next few years they took out a whole set of city-states in modern-day Afghanistan. Belch was conquered after a bloody war. The Arabs bribed their way inside the walls of Kabul and won control of it after a fight inside the town. Herat, finding itself thus surrounded, treated with the Arabs around then, or maybe years earlier, the dating is kind of all over the place. There are mentions of assaults on Bactria, and some histories claim the Arabs reached as far east as Lahore and as far north as Khwarizm and Songdia. I'll see if I can find a map which shows the extent of these conquests and post them on the show website for anyone who's interested. Which, just as a reminder, is thecaliphs.com. Now, like I said earlier, the Arabs weren't interested in settling down or governing. They just wanted these cities to surrender and pay tribute. For the most part, the surviving nobility or whoever was in charge liked the idea of self-government, and they would treat with the Arabs to maintain it. Those cities which had resisted or otherwise suffered at Arab hands would reorganize their defenses as soon as their conquerors had left. After repeated rebellions, Ziad was convinced that Iraq was just too far away to effectively rule these distant city-states. The sources casually report that he ordered 50,000 Arabs from Kufa and Basra to make an almost 2,500-kilometer trip to go settle near the oasis of Meru in modern-day Turkmenistan. This unprecedented move made good sense as it would create an Arab capital in Khurasan to better control its unruly cities and was an opportunity to defuse local tensions in Iraq from the overpopulation Ziad's competent rule had brought about. This founding of so large a settlement that far from the Arabian Peninsula was a truly exceptional occurrence, and it will have profound consequences on the caliphate a few generations down the line. The Arabs did found one other town during Muawiyah's reign, however, all the way west in Tunis. Around the same time as this, in the early 670s that is, a commander in Egypt by the name of Uqba bin Nafi'ah marched an army of 10,000 across the northern coast of Africa, and, and he established a caravansary called Qayrawan, which he used as a base of operations to expand further west. He won several battles against local Berber tribes, who had until then resisted Arab advances into their domains with relative success. My summary makes it sound trifling, but Uqba was an amazing general, sort of like Khalid ibn al-Walid. Or at least he could have been. The wars in the east had progressed swiftly under Ziad's proficient administration, and maybe the African campaigns would have as well if the province had stayed in the hands of someone as capable. After Amr ibn al-As's death in the mid-660s, Muawiyah let Amr's son govern for a couple of years, then he started passing the governorship around between some loyalists. As a result of all this shuffling, the unbeaten Uqba got hamstrung when a new governor replaced him by another commander, whose first act was to throw Uqba in jail as a way of taking charge. To round out the story, Uqba was summoned back to Damascus, complained to Muawiyah, finally got put back in charge after a long time, and he took his revenge by dragging that commander who'd replaced him around in chains with him wherever he went. The both of them were eventually killed by a Berber king who ambushed their camp in the early 680s and went on to take Qayrawan, which had by then become a small town a hundred miles south of today's city of Tunis. Despite the significance of both the Iraqi and African campaigns, Muawiyah is mainly remembered for his wars against the Byzantines. Back when he was just governor of Syria under the previous caliphs, Muawiyah had already established a tradition of biannual raids on Byzantine lands, once in the summer and once in the winter. 
A few years into his role as caliph, he restarted these raids, which he had paused for a while after treating with the Byzantines for a sum of 100,000 gold pieces a year. He used his closest loyalists as commanders for these raids, and he rewarded their heroes with great wealth and lands in Syria, all of which probably played a big part in why he's so strongly associated with them in Arab memory. He even used his own son as commander there, a few times to boost his public exposure, and we'll talk a lot more about Yazid ibn Muawiyah next episode, when we focus on the issue of succession. For the first few years, Arab raids were a lot like they had always been. Bands of Arab warriors attack the countryside, fight off any armies they meet, try to sack cities, more often settling for towns, and then try and make off with as much plunder as possible while being chased by Byzantine troops. But after a while, they started to make some real progress, and Muawiyah's incorporation of his navy into these routine advances turned them from basic raids to unremitting invasions. Sadly, most of the narrations relayed by our sources devote themselves only to listing the names of those commanding the various raids, which despite not giving us much information, at least clearly communicates how association with these incursions was extremely desirable, and led to both material gain and social renown. To hear our sources tell it, these years of increasingly daring adventures culminated in the Arab navy taking an island over in the Sea of Marmara, very close to the Byzantine capital Constantinople. From then on, the biannual rhythm changed. The Arab armies began to winter on the island and use the summer to fight battles around the Byzantine capital. This dangerous new state of affairs lasted for between six to eight years, think early to late 670s, and the entire period is referred to as the Siege of Constantinople. There was no mega-battle at the gates of Constantinople, but the proximity of the fighting to their adversary's capital spurred Arab momentum, and the last three or four years of the siege attracted prominent leaders from pretty much all over the caliphate. What is perhaps the most famous story of this period took place during an especially well-attended summer raid commanded by Muawiyah's son Yazid. Ibn Abbas was there, Ibn Zubayr, Ibn Omar, pretty much all of the Ummah's MVPs. One night an old revered member of the Ansar, Abu Ayyub, in whose house the Prophet had stayed when he first moved to Medina, made a dying wish of being buried outside the city's walls before succumbing to an illness. The next day, the Arabs rallied to fight their enemies back far enough to give their friend the send-off he had requested. His grave was rediscovered at the dawn of the city's Ottoman age, about 700 years later, and is considered a holy site in Istanbul today. Anyway, the loosely defined siege came to an unsuccessful end shortly after that. Our sources list three reasons, the numerousness of the city's many defenders, the firmness of its walls, and Greek fire. The Byzantines used this new incendiary material to great effect against the Arab navy, routing them entirely, and crucially, disbanding the position they held on that close-by island. Without it, the Arab armies had a much harder time fighting the Byzantine foes on land, especially with the latter being so close to home, and they were finally defeated towards the end of the 670s. The Byzantine victories would prove decisive, as the Arabs would not fight them so close to home for a long time to come. This pretty much summarizes the warring that took place during Muawiyah's time. While the Umayyad is mostly remembered for his advances on Constantinople, it is clear that the east of the Caliphate experienced much more significant growth. Expansion in the African West proved more transient. Despite Uqba raiding all the way to the Atlantic, 
The Arabs had little to show for it after the Berbers took him and his Qairawan out. Let's now move between a number of related themes to round out our impression of how things stood during Muawiyah's reign. Even before these latest campaigns, the vast majority of the Caliphate was conquered lands, and I've already stressed that the Arabs were only in it for the plunder at this stage, and after they'd defeated an army or treated with a population, they expected the people they'd just subdued to have their own affairs all figured out, including their economies and modes of government, to use modern jargon. The Arabs had no interest in making changes to these systems and just wanted a regular cut of any proceeds, and so they relied on whoever was left in charge to make the wise choice of paying them on time. The fact that they made as few changes as possible meant that the Arabs neither kept their own records nor minted their own currencies. Taxes were kept in whatever languages the local populations used, and if you check the graph on the episode's page, you'll notice how the revenue from the Sassanid East is a whole order of magnitude larger than that of the Byzantine West of the Caliphate. That's because the East still used Sassanid silver drachma, or dirham, and the West used Byzantine gold dinars. We can build further on this theme of difference between the East and West. The big cities of Syria all had considerable Arab populations, mainly thanks to Muawiyah's fondness of the province, as did Fustat in Egypt. Locals there grew more accustomed to the Arabs as they interacted with them often in their day-to-day, leading their lifestyles to somewhat rub off on one another. Those in the East had a very different experience, like the jarring dissonance of having your nobles collaborate with foreign conquerors who marched armies around every year, with occasional news of nearby rebellions being quashed with great cruelty. It'll be a while before these differences come to a head, but I'm just saying that this light-touch administration where the Arabs let you rule yourself wasn't experienced equally throughout the Caliphate. It was good for maintaining local stability, though, and that early Umayyad period did enjoy a good dose of that, especially during the rule of its wily Duhat governors. Egypt was for Amr ibn Ras until that Dahiya died. Then, after his son governed it for a couple years, it went through a number of different loyalists. Iraq was for al-Mughira and Ziyad while those two Duhat lived, and Ziyad transformed the Iraqi cities from tribal military cantons into proper settlements, his rigorous administration keeping him on top of their armies and populations. Unfortunately for Muawiyah, Ziyad was not immortal, and he passed away in the late 670s, leaving many different pairs of shoes to fill. The caliph would go on to appoint and reappoint governors to Kufa, Basra, al-Bahrain, and Khurasan over and over in search of another Ziyad, but he was a tough act to follow. The important Arab cities of Mecca, Medina, and Ta'if were reserved for Umayyad governors, and other provinces of the peninsula went either to Umayyads or their local loyalists, a policy meant to encourage support for the Qurayshi clan, which seems to have been especially lacking in the Arabian desert. And this just leaves us with Syria, where Muawiyah ruled from his capital in Damascus. As is fitting for this controversial figure, our sources give him mixed reviews, though the flourishing province does sort of speak for itself. Al-Yaqubi is scandalized by the contrast between Muawiyah's lifestyle and that of his predecessors, and he puts together a long list of firsts to communicate his displeasure. Muawiyah was the first caliph to receive visitors lying on a bed, the first to have a personal guard, the first to own eunuchs, the first to allow Christians to govern over Arabs, and so on. While it's clearly part of a polemic, it is still a helpful depiction of the change that Muawiyah's reign represented. 
Contrast to this the picture which emerges from a passage of Mas'udi's history describing a day in the life of the first Umayyad Caliph. In it, Muawiyah starts his day with dawn prayers, devotes the morning and early noon to his various state duties, then spends the rest of the day until sunset at the mosque, receiving delegations of whatever Arab notables wished to meet with him that day. After dusk prayers, he would head back to his palace to delight in sundry pleasures before bed. So both sources agree that the caliph lived more sumptuously than his predecessors, but Mas'udi's account brings out an aspect of Muawiyah's rule much lauded by his people, the part where his court was open to any of their tribal nobles, whom he would often shower with great riches. Sure, he had bodyguards surrounding him and he lied on a comfy bed instead of the dusty floor, but he validated the tribal hierarchies which the Arabs were most accustomed to, and they loved him for it. There were noteworthy cultural milestones during his time as well, some even stemming from Muawiyah's court and generosity. He and his son hosted the poet Al-Akhtal, who would become renowned for his, quote, perfect poetry, much of it in the form of panegyrics, which lavished praise on his generous patrons and skewered their opponents. Ahmad Amin, a modern historian, traces the roots of Arabic music to this period as well, saying that the enslaved laborers working on one of Muawiyah's buildings were the main subjects of the first attempts at musical analysis in any of our Arab sources, and musical instruments begin to appear in narrations towards the end of Muawiyah's reign. Another important development was the addition of diacritic marks to the Arabic script in order to ensure the correct reading of the Qur'an. Basically, someone in Basra was reading the holy word so wrong that it veered deep into blasphemy, and a local official named Abu Aswad al-Du'adi took it upon himself to devise a system to help newly literate people read. He sat a scribe down in front of him, gave him a copy of the Qur'an, and told him to watch his lips closely as Abu al-Aswad recited the whole thing. He instructed the scribe to dab some red ink above the script's black letters if Abu al-Aswad opened his mouth when he pronounced them, on the letters when he pursed his lips, and beneath them when he frowned, making the Arabic script a two-toned beauty. I'll try and find a photo. Overlaying circles in a whole new ink color may have been a bit crude, but it was the first in three steps the Arabic script would go on to complete in order to become the one we know today. I find it fascinating how the Qur'an wholly defined the script's evolution, making Arabic a Semitic script devoted entirely to transmitting a single book. Okay, I think we ought to look back on what we've covered and reflect on what it all means before wrapping up. There's not much more to tell in our sources that isn't related to the issue of succession, which will make our subject next time. Muawiyah's reign had the kind of military vitality unseen since the days of the earliest caliphs, but the tone in the classical histories is plainly different. With the possible exception of those battles around Constantinople, which did wonders for the Umayyad's legitimacy among the Arabs, by the way, Muawiyah's raids were too strongly associated with his loyalists to feel like they were goals the Ummah had set upon in unison. Couple that with the way his Duhat governors cleverly manipulated the different factions into eventually giving in, and the impression that the Arabs were being ruled by a regime or managed from above becomes tough to dismiss. Perhaps due to the biases inherent in oral narrations, we get lots of material on the clever Arab governors, with praise and criticism heaped especially on the governor of Iraq, Ziad bin Abi Sufyan. Whether the Arabs loved or hated the man is a matter of opinion, but it's clear that they appreciated the magnitude of the changes he brought about. 
A good expression of this ambivalence towards his style of governance comes from a story where he publicly executes someone despite privately believing that he was innocent, reasoning that his death would set a good example for the city. I'm honestly not sure what to make of that. It seems pretty bad until the story begins to stress how it was for the good of everyone that he was willing to overstep the line. Another source said Ziad had the harshness of Omar, but harsher. Again, good and bad interwoven. Muawiyah's ascendancy proves that the Arabs barely saw the position of caliph as a religious one. By this point, it was less successor to the prophet and more commander of the faithful. The caliph had many contemporaries who were seen as far more religiously inclined than he, and some of Muawiyah's acts, like the mandatory cursing of Ali ibn Abi Talib at the mosque, his official admission of Ziyad as an Umayyad, his life in Damascus in general, and plenty of other things all earned him scorn from the faithful. Another good example of how the Arabs were cool with the caliph being a purely political figure comes from the annual pilgrimage to Mecca, the Hajj. Up until the fourth caliph, Ali ibn Abi Talib, got tied up fighting the two uprisings against his caliphate, this had almost always been led by the caliph, and Ali had other Hashemites from his clan lead it in his stead. Muawiyah only led the procession twice. The first time didn't come up until he had appointed the Duhat and was feeling secure in his position. The stories we get from then are all political. He berates the Hashemites who come to talk to him, and then those of the Ansar, accusing both of them of aiding Uthman's killers. But that's not the point. The point is he didn't like it there, and found the Arabs on the peninsula to be a lot less hospitable than those he surrounded himself with in Syria, and so he didn't return to lead it again until he needed something many years later. About halfway through his reign, though, Muawiyah thought he'd try and lessen the overwhelming religious importance of Medina and bolster that of his capital Damascus. He decreed that it was his right as caliph to use the prophet's pulpit as those before him had. There wasn't a lot the people of Medina could do, and it was decided that the deeply symbolic wooden stepladder would be brought to Muawiyah with the Hajj caravan as it made its way back to the city. Mere weeks before the Hajj, however, a total solar eclipse lasting over 10 minutes took place over the peninsula, and the deeply superstitious Muawiyah took the rare occurrence as a forbidding omen and he abandoned his plans. The narrations around this eclipse are so sensationalized that I had a hard time believing any of it took place, but sure enough the eclipse is predicted by NASA's 5 millennium canon of solar eclipses. Check the episode page for a link. The narrations relaying these events are triumphant, overjoyed that Muawiyah's seemingly incontestable will had been thwarted. If this gives us our last bit of proof that the caliph wasn't the seat of religious authority, then it also gives rise to a new question. Where exactly was that now? This is one of those issues that was only starting to emerge, and we will keep an eye on the development of a religious class in Islam. It will take a while for these forces to give rise to actors who play a shaping role in the politics of the Ummah, and for now there was no clerical establishment, just those who were renowned for their outstanding moral character and knowledge of the Prophet's ways or the Holy Word. You could argue that it was religious considerations which pushed any Karajites to secede from the Ummah, but a lot of it seems pretty tribally motivated when you take a closer look, so I don't know. In the distant future, though, similar to how the tribal divisions between the Arabs represented dormant fault lines that you had to know about to understand the community's rupture along them later, religious differences will help explain the political inclinations and choices of multiple parties down the line. 
We've covered a lot today, and I find myself wondering what to think about Arab power in the age of Muawiyah. He was powerful, sure, but was that enough? Or did it have to feel like everyone was in on it to fully qualify as Arab power? And how much of this difference in what it felt like to read about it was just the historical sources or generational narrations romanticizing what had come before as a way of lamenting their own present? I don't think anybody knows. I hope you enjoyed this episode and will join me next time as we conclude this influential figure's journey here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.